0: America. Welcome to One Nation. I'm your host, Jake Jacobs. Today, we discuss early Democratic Party history. So if you go to Democrats.org under Who We Are or Our History, you will see a picture of Barack Obama, Representative John Lewis, Michelle Obama, their kids, and many other civil rights dignitaries at the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. President Bush was actually in the picture, but he was taken out of the picture. It makes sense. It's a Democratic Party uh, website. But it's interesting because in the Democratic Party website, the DNC, the first line under our history says this. For more than 200 years, our party has led the fight for civil rights. They make references to Barack Obama, JFK, FDR, and then they skip to 1920 and the 19th Amendment and the right for women to vote, giving the credit to Democratic President Woodrow Wilson. Now, let's go back in history to see if the Democrats actually did lead the fight for 200 years, and why is it they skipped over 100 years of their early history now according to at one point in uh, democratic history the dnc used to say that thomas jefferson was the founder of the democratic party in 1792 now in early 1790s there were two primary groups two primary political parties so to speak they were called the federalist and the anti-federalist actually the Anti-Federalists would not have called themselves Anti-Federalists, they would have called themselves Republicans. It was very common in political parlance of the late 1700s, early 1800s, for many of our American founders and politicians to go by the name or by the, the title Republicans. It, it's not that they were against a central federal government. The Republicans or the Anti-Federalists felt that the Federalists were arguing for too large of a. Uh, central government. Now, it's interesting to note, by the way, that a lot of your historians will call those anti-federalists democratic federalists, or excuse me, democratic republicans, but the fact of the matter is that it was not very common, in fact, hardly ever, that any of our founders would have even referenced themselves as democrats, because it was a very negative term. They would have called themselves republicans. I think it's interesting to note, and I bring this up because our founder said in Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution that we were to have a federal form of government, federal form of government in our states. So you don't see things like into the democracy for which it stands, it's to the republic for which it stands. So this is, I think, very, very important for us to understand. Now, these two groups vying for political power, they uh, actually went up against each other in the election of 1800, one of the most contentious elections in American history. You had the Federalist candidate, the president of the United States, John Adams, going up against his former secretary of state, the uh, Republican Thomas Jefferson. I mean, incredibly contentious. And the people of the world, they were actually watching to see if our baby republic was going to be able to survive. It did. There was no coup d'etat, as many people predicted, and John Adams uh, got in his carriage with Abigail and went home to Massachusetts to spend the rest of his life writing his memoirs and looking back at the wonderful years of the founding of the country. Thomas Jefferson gave an amazing inaugural address uh, after the election in 1801. And in it, as a way to bring the country together, he said, we all are Republicans. We all are Federalists. Now, in in actuality, you know, we, we do see that the Democratic National Committee said, hey, the original founder was Thomas Jefferson, but more and more historians were saying to them, that's not really accurate. It's more accurate to say... That the two big movers and shakers and actual founder of the Dem- Democratic Party was assumed to be president, the eighth president of the United States, Martin Van Buren. You see him in the movie Amistad. That's the great case, uh, the slavery case, where uh, John Quincy Adams actually represents the former slaves out of Africa, and Van Van Buren, Martin Van Buren, is the Democratic president who wants to actually keep slavery going. But Martin Van Buren was a mover and shaker within this political group that eventually becomes known as the Democratic Party, and he works with Andrew Jackson, And eventually, Van Buren gets Jackson elected President of the United States. In fact, Jackson beat John Quincy Adams of Massachusetts to become President. And John Quincy Adams, actually, you know, his father was the famous second President of the United States, first President of the United States, John Adams. And his family, the Adams family, Abigail, John, and John Quincy, they hated slavery, they despised slavery. In fact, Massachusetts was a free state that did not have slavery. But according to most historians, and my good friend, actually, who wrote the book A Patriot's History of the United States of America, Larry Schweikart, I'd highly recommend that book, he said, in essence, that the father of the modern Democratic Party, without question, was Martin Van Buren. And by the way, it's interesting to note that... uh, The Democrat uh, leader of the Democratic Party now was uh, uh, Andrew Jackson. And Andrew Jackson, because a lot of—there was another party at this particular time called the Whigs— and they, they were anti-slavery, not big anti-slavery, but they were, they weren't, they were very much uh, against a strong central uh, executive president. They called Jackson, King Jackson, and they started to play on his name Jackson and started to call him Jackass. You see this in a lot of early uh, picture drawings of this time period. And thus the Jackass became the symbol of the Democratic Party. Now, the, the Democrats, they viewed the central government as the enemy of individual liberty. They became, from their thinking, uh, the defenders of the common man. They were against the central bank. So it's interesting, if you listen to some of these ideas, some of them can resonate with us to this very day. When they emphasized that they were defending the common man, you saw that a lot of farmers, uh, Irish Catholics, and others they were actually uh, attracted to the Democratic Party. Now, by the way, it's an interesting side note and it does actually deal with uh, with me and my family as my family were uh, devout Catholics, uh, French and Irish Catholics going way back in American history, uh, many of my, my, my parents, my grandparents on both sides of, of my family, the Lafleurs, the Jacobes uh, were French Canadians and then some of them were Irish. And so they were all Democrats. They were devout, devoted Democrats because they felt the Democratic Party was the co- party of the common man so you see that in the 1830s 1840s 1850s the democratic party it was then called the jacksonian democracy was actually the power base of political power in washington dc and they said look we can bring land to the common man But unfortunately, some of the negative stuff of this land for the common man was actually the deplorable, horrible trail of tears where the indigenous, the Native Americans, were pushed out of lands, pushed west and farther west in the 1830s and 40s and 50s. Andrew, President Jackson was notorious for that. And, of course, the Democrats were for the war in Mexico because they got, they were able to achieve uh, purchasing or getting more land, I should say, getting more land for the so-called common man. And it's very interesting. The Democratic Party had immense power in this time frame. Like I said, it was established 1829, but you go 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, they had the power. They had it at the state level, and they also had it at the federal level. Their very first Constitutional Convention was held in Baltimore, Maryland, in 1840. And they developed a political party platform. And it's interesting to note, if you recognize that— I don't want to read, of course, the whole platform or bore the heck out of you, but I want to emphasize a couple of the salient points within the Democratic Party platform. They said in in Resolution number 1 that the federal government is one of limited powers— And you know what? I don't know about you, but I like that. I believe in that libertarians, conservatives of today, say we want a federal government of limited powers. And in another one of their resolutions is that Congress did not have the power to charter or create a central bank. Well, I don't know about you, but I have been very suspect of the Federal Reserve, the federal income tax, going back to 1913 when the Democrats and, Fe- and Woodrow Wilson created a central bank known as the Federal Reserve. That's another topic for another time. But, so it looks like there's a couple of key things within the creation of the Democratic Party that we like. Right, manifest destiny, land for all, land for the common man, a limited federal government, a, a, we don't want a corrupt central national bank. But then it starts to get dicey. It starts to get spicy because in resolution seven they say that Congress has no power under the Constitution to interfere with all efforts by abolitionists, and abolitionists are you know wanted to abolish slavery or others to induce Congress to interfere with questions of slavery. So first couple of principles, looks like we like it, but then all of a sudden they get into high gear with this slavery question in eighteen forty. And then they go in resolution nine and they say, look, and this is interesting, I'll read it Directly, that the liberal principles embodied by Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence and sanctioned in the Constitution, which makes ours the land of liberty and the asylum of the oppressed of every nation, have ever been cardinal principles of the democratic faith. Now this is interesting, people, because they never mentioned the fact that Thomas Jefferson declared, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So the Democratic Party very conveniently ignores that part of equality for all people. So, you see, they do have an affinity towards uh, the the anti-federalist Republican kind of viewpoint of limited federal government. They don't trust a natural central bank, but they don't like the idea that there are abolitionists in the land, anti-slavery folk in the land, that there are states up in the north, in Ohio, in New York, that where slaves are actually no longer slaves, they're free. Well, around this same time period, where actually a few years before, in 1820, uh, and this prefaces it, this is important for us to recognize, was the Missouri Compromise. Now, the Missouri Compromise, now this antedates a few years, the birth of the Republican Party, but many of the movers and shakers that would be involved in the creation of the Republican Party, they didn't like the fact that states were coming into the Union free. So what the compromise was, and it's always evolved in centers around slavery, the compromise was Missouri comes in as a slave state, Maine comes in as a free state. Because the, the Democrats were afraid that if you had too many free states, the Electoral College would be, did not, would be dominated to actually have freedom rule in the land. Now the Democratic Party had a platform in 1844, real quick. There they were, number one again. They said that it's a federal government of limited powers. I like that. They also said that the Congress had no power to charge uh, to charter a, a United States bank. I like that, too. They also said, though, in resolution number seven, that Congress had no power to interfere by abolitionists or others made to induce Congress to interfere with the question of slavery. So you can see what's developing within the Democratic Party. Party. They say, we want limited federal government. We don't trust a, natural, a, a national central bank. But we, and, and we do uh, believe in the liberal principles uh, embodied by the Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence ignoring the equality of all. The, but then their platform over and over again reiterates, we don't want the federal government li- limiting our ability to have slaves. So now if you see the the Democratic platform of 1848, now please bear with me, I understand. Uh, Democratic Party platform of today, a Republican Party platform of today is dozens and dozens and dozens of pages compared to a few pages of of many years ago. But the Democratic Party platform of 1848 does the same thing, limited federal government. Uh, Congress has no power to charter a national bank. But then again, it reiterates that Congress has no power to interfere on the efforts of abolitionists or others made to induce Congress to interfere with questions of slavery. So there, they have become proudly the party to preserve and to advance slavery. But something happens in 1850. California, the huge state of California, comes in free freedom, liberty, right? And the Democrats aren't happy. So they use the power of the federal government to actually enhance and advance the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793. So they take the Act of 1793 and they enhance it, they give it more federal power, in essence, when slaves from the south were escaping up into, let's say, uh, Wisconsin or up into New York or Ohio, then the federal government would get involved, grab those escaped slaves, bring them down to the south. You know, I, I I find that quite interesting, and you know why? because theoretically, the Democratic Party was the party of limited federal government. It was the party of states' rights. And yet, their history shows that they wanted states' rights to preserve slavery, but they also wanted federal power to preserve slavery. And that is the antithesis of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, in 1852, An incredible book was written by an amazing woman. Her name was Harriet Beecher Stowe. She wrote a book called Uncle Tom's Cabin. She was from the free state of Ohio. Democrats, just like California, becoming a free state, were absolutely furious. You know, what the Democrats ended up doing is they used the power of the federal government to actually stop any literature anti-slavery literature through the post office and other means of going down into the South to convince the Southern people, the Southern people, the Democratic people and Southern Democrats, to uh, actually uh, go against slavery. So here, once again, they're using federal power to preserve and keep slavery. Now, you go to the, the Democratic Party platform of 1852, it's a reiteration of all the previous platforms. Federal government limited We don't want a national bank, okay? Uh, We believe in the liberal principles of Jefferson democracy, which of course they leave out equality for all. But then you can see there's a part of their platform because things are intensifying. Abolitionism is growing. Anti-slavery sentiments are growing across the land in Wisconsin, in Ohio, in Michigan, in New York. And so they expand resolution number nine and in there, they say, Congress has no power to interfere with all efforts of the abolitionists or others made to induce Congress to interfere with questions of slavery or to take incipient steps, incipient, excuse me, steps in relation thereto are calculated to leave, lead to the most alarming and dangerous consequences." As early as 1852, I'm sad to say, my parents, my grandparents, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, they were Democrats. I was a Democrat as a kid. But it's kind of embarrassing to say that by 1852, the Democratic Party was threatening war if these anti-slavery folk up north, if the abolitionists were going to continue with their insistence that slavery was the antithesis of liberty. So in 1854, the Democrats, under President Franklin Pierce, they passed through the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And in essence, the Kansas-Nebraska Act said, let the states decide on slavery, popular sovereignty. All hell broke loose in Kansas and Nebraska. It was ugly. In fact, they called Kansas bloody Kansas. 1856 democratic platform. The government, once again, is for limited power. I like that. I know you like that. A true classic liberal, a true conservative, a true constitutional conservative, constitutional classic liberal believes in limited federal government. But it's interesting, the democratic platform then goes on to say, hey, but we're for We're for the advancement of slavery, and if if anybody up north, if anybody gets involved with the resolution to stop us, we want the federal government to get more involved. And so you'll see them talking about the liberal principles by Thomas Jefferson and the resolution to not get involved with the domestic issue of slavery. And it's very important to recognize and note that they are determined, to let the northern free states know that they will not allow freedom for their slaves in the, so- in the Democratic Party, in the Deep South, in the Middle South, for that matter. Now, in 1857, one of the most egregious Supreme Court decisions in the history of the United States of America came before us. It was the deplorable, it was the horrible Dred Scott decision of 1857. Seven of the nine Supreme Court justices, they were Democrats. It was, was remember, we had said that the political power in the federal government in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s was dominated by the Democratic Party in Washington, D.C., in the House of uh, uh, Representatives, in the Senate, executive power, federal power upon power. And yes, it's true. They said we're the party of states' rights, and we don't want... You know, it's interesting. The Democratic Party said we're the party of states' rights, but then when Wisconsin or Ohio or Michigan or New York exercised their states' rights for slaves to be free, in the state of Wisconsin, Ohio, Michigan, and New York, oh, no, 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 we don't want those kind of states' rights. We're going to use federal power to stop you northern states from exercising your states' rights. I know what you're thinking. Duplicity, hypocrisy, a double standard. Yes, of course it is. It's a double standard. I, I, you know what? I am critiquing their platform. There's some good parts of the platform, but the platform that says they believe in the liberal principles of Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence, and they totally ignore the fact that it says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And this was grinding at the soul of America in this time period. So when the Supreme Court, the democratically controlled Supreme Court, ruled that Dred Scott, that, that uh, escaped slaves, were sent back down into the South, that they, in essence, were property, were chattel, were animals. Like if you owned a pig or a cow and you brought it to Wisconsin or you brought it to New York or you brought it to Ohio, it had no right to be away from its owner, its rightful owner, the slave owners of the South, of the Democratic Party. Now, I think it's interesting, you know, by the way, there's an incredible side story to this. And the state of Wisconsin has an incredible anti-slavery, abolitionist heritage, and I'm incredibly proud of it. And we're going to deal uh, more with that in our next program when we focus in on the early history of the Republican Party. But there was a, an escaped slave, a slave by the name of Joshua Glover. Joshua Glover escapes to the state of Wisconsin. He, he he hides in Racine, Wisconsin, that's the southern part of the state of Wisconsin, and he gets found. He gets found out and he goes up into Milwaukee. They, they take him up, they take him up into Milwaukee and they put him in a jail in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And a bunch of ex-Democrats who were soon to become Republicans gather together and they break him out of the jail. And he escapes and goes lives in Canada because even though Wisconsin was a free state, the Democrats were using federal power to deny escaped slaves freedom in the state of Wisconsin. Remember, if you go back to 1787 and the Northwest Ordinance uh, that was uh, ratified and passed by the first Congress and signed by uh, President George Washington, the Northwest Ordinance dealt with the territories, which eventually would become the states of Ohio and Michigan and Indiana and Illinois, Wisconsin, etc. And Wisconsin, from its birth in 1848, was a free state. And so, therefore slaves in the democratic controlled South, in the democratic slave states of the South, they would come naturally to Wisconsin and to Ohio and to Michigan and into Indiana and to New York you You all know it as the the history of the the wonderful uh, underground railroad with Harriet Tudman and Harriet Jacobs. Uh, I had to get my name in there. the 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 great former escape uh, former escaped slave Harriet Tudman and uh, Tudman and Harriet Jacobs, who have an amazing story of getting away from the influence of the slave Democratic Party and coming into the north. And these ideas were coming into not too far away from this studio, actually, where more and more, former Whigs, former Liberty Party people, former Democrats, were deciding to create a new party, and it becomes known as the Republican Party, founded in Ripon, Wisconsin. That's not too far away from this studio. It's an absolute amazing story, people. Good Democrats rejecting the party that was now wanting to preserve and advance slavery. Former Whigs. There was a political party called the Liberty Party that was founded in 1840, and they broke away from the Whig. Uh, from excuse me, they broke away uh, to be independent from an anti-slavery organization in this time period. And one of the famous members of the Liberty Party was Frederick Douglass, and they said that the Constitution was an amazing document an amazing document that if applied properly it could actually create incredible uh, liberty and freedom in the United States of America so you've got the former members of this Liberty Party former members of the Whig Party former members of the Free Soil Party and ex-democrats coming together in this great state of Wisconsin in Ripon Wisconsin in 1854 creating the Republican Party. Now, it's interesting because when the Republicans in 1860 actually nominated Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, the Democrats had a visceral uh, reaction to that. They said, oh my God, you Republicans, you've, you've nominated a black Republican, a Negro Republican. And so, sad to say, and that's where we're really going to spend a lot of time next week in our show, because they ended up declaring war on the United States of America and creating what we call a civil war that saw the death of over 7 million, excuse me, 700,000 Americans, which would be equal to about 7 million Americans today, so that slavery could be eradicated from the land and that the United States of America could live up to the creed that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that we, all of us, are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So next week, our show will be about the early history of the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln Republicanism versus Jacksonian democracy. So until we meet again, God speed, God bless, and happy trails to you.